So good morning again, Middle Church. Today's text includes one of Jesus' several parables about a master leading his servants and slaves with the keys to the kingdom, leaving them with the keys to the house. Today we are told to keep the lamps lit and to stay dressed for action, which is the NRSV version, but the direct translation, which I like a little bit more, is to gird our loins. Which you look up is not as uh, you know, racy as it sounds. Uh, just to get the tunic all wrapped up around and so you can run better. Uh, but these stories never sat well with me as a kid growing up in church, to be honest. They seem to be saying to us, watch out. You never know when God is coming for you. Keep your head on a swivel. Jesus could show up at any moment and catch you stealing that last oatmeal cream pie from the closet. <laughs> and yes, I would actually eat that last oatmeal cream pie and begin my prayer for forgiveness before the last bite was down just to make sure I didn't get caught in sin. It was a stressful life. And now that I've grown up and get to enjoy the luxuries of adulthood, like eating ice cream every night and sometimes in the morning, where the only real regret is physical and not existential. <laughs> I find myself with a different quarrel with the text today. See, I don't like that we're talking about masters or slaves and servants as if it's a legitimate metaphor in the first place. I imagine I'd be more interested in how the servants could squat on the land and create a model of cooperative ownership that they do in Acts, in the next book of Luke-Acts. So that when the master comes back, he no longer can rule over others. And of course, the master would be welcome to join the co-op. When my kind-hearted and thoughtful spouse, Hershey, read that intro, she told me it was one of the whitest things I had ever written. She said, you can't even handle a parable about not being in charge of everything. You have to theorize your way out of it and then call it moral. Hmm. Well, what can you do? I still, like, I still don't like these stories. And as I read the section of scripture earlier in the chapter for the text today, I found myself even more put off by Jesus' anxiety-inducing warnings. Just 10 short verses earlier, Jesus tells the disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Come on, Jesus, which one is it? Perpetual neurotic vigilance or hakuna matata, no worries, be happy. Because as I said, this parable is not an isolated incident. Jesus tells several of these parables about a master of the house going on a journey and coming back unexpected to judge the servants. There's the parable of the talents where the servants receive different numbers of talents and the master comes back to see what they did with them. There's the parable of the bridegroom and ten bridesmaids, half of whom were disowned forever because they didn't bring enough oil for the lamps. And each of these caused me to feel like God acted more like a hidden camera or a big brother waiting around the corner to jump and catch you in the act than the all-loving God 
we talked about. So I wasn't keen at first about this scripture, and, but as many of you know, it's the scriptures that make you the most uncomfortable that are often the ones you need to hear the most right now. These stories of Jesus are often called by scholars parables of stewardship. They tell stories of people, often described as servants or slaves, left in charge of a place that does not belong to them. They are judged by their behavior in the absence of the rightful owner. They They were stewards of the property, lands, and people left to them. But on another level, as Justo Gonzalez argues in his book on Luke, these are also stories about the absence of God. He argues that the theme of God's absence is actually central to Jesus' ministry and message while he walked this world. Now, if the idea of a gotcha God who was waiting to catch us in sin wasn't off-putting, now we have a God who comes up missing. And yet Jesus knew that the disciples and all of us, each of us, would find ourselves at times feeling the absence of God. See, there's other parables where we are the ones who leave God. We are the ones who wander away from God's love, like the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. And in fact, as a good, repentant Protestant, I like these parables more. In these parables, I'm in control. I'm the sheep who wanders away. I'm the son who decides to leave with my inheritance and run away. I can find comfort in my human depravity because I know what to do when I'm lost. But what about when it feels like God is lost? What about when a 21-year-old drives 10 hours to kill 22 strangers in a Walmart in El Paso? 22 children of the Most High God. They weren't lost sheep or prodigal sons or daughters or children. The oldest was 90 years old. The youngest was 15. What about when another man kills nine human beings in less than a minute in Dayton? What can we say about God when the most explicitly white supremacist president, probably since Woodrow Wilson, makes a statement condemning white supremacy, and the next day while he is in El Paso supposedly comforting victims who are targeted because of the anti-immigrant xenophobia he has fueled, his administration carries out what ICE will proudly, proudly call the largest raid in U.S. history, where nearly 700 workers handcuffed in Mississippi factories in a campaign of terror, leaving children and families unattended and traumatized. Where is God? When these mass shootings and the terror campaigns against immigrants are most horrifying, not in their unique terror, but that they have become a mundane reality of American life. Yes, I don't think I've liked these stewardship parables because ultimately they are asking us to be responsible for a deeply broken world. 
And we are reaping now the horror of what happens when stewards get confused by the freedom and responsibility given to them and given to us. And, come, and those who come to think that they or we are the master just because we have the keys. Those who, like the unfaithful slave in the following part of chapter 12, begin to use that freedom to control the world around them and drunk on power beat others into submission. So what is it that God wants from us when God is absent? Henry Nouwen says, as we become aware of God's absence, we discover God's presence. And as we realize that God left us, we also come to know that God did not leave us alone. It may be instructive to take a look at where we find ourselves in the gospel story midway through Luke. Here we are no longer dealing with let the little children come to me, Jesus. This is not the Jesus of sweet lullabies and Christian love songs. This Jesus has turned a corner. Turned a corner towards Golgotha, towards Calvary, towards his own crucifixion. And he is looking at the world with brutal clarity. Just in the middle, Luke is, Jesus in the middle, Luke, is not comforting in the traditional sense. Later in chapter 12, verse 39, he will say, I came to bring fire to earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. It is as Sonia Sanchez described the immortal brilliance of Toni Morrison this week on Democracy Now! saying, Toni Morrison looked at the world with a cold and a warm eye. That she helped us look at the world with great clarity and to speak truth about it with unmolested language and unmolested truth. Yes, the prophetic love and ministry and unmolested language of our brother Jesus prepares us for times like now. When, to use Toni Morrison's words, the parasitical nature of white freedom comes to hound our souls. Love that line from Playing in the Dark. The parasitical nature of white freedom. It is a parasitical white freedom because it is a freedom that garners its strength from oppression. This corrupted American freedom is what allowed our founders to have no problem holding liberty and justice for all in one hand and holding people in chains in another, to paraphrase Karen and Barbara Fields. It is a form of freedom that requires slavery to affirm its freedom. It is the version of freedom that is most threatened by the real thing. And yet it is in times like these when God feels so painfully absent that it also becomes so clear what God's justice does not look like. So clear how untenable a world without God and without God's mercy and justice would be. In God's absence, the beauty of humanity and creation becomes all the more urgent, urgently important because we see how precious it is. This is what the story of the good steward means to me. We must keep our loins girded and lamps lit because the paradox of Christ is that it is through the crucifixion in and through death, that death is destroyed. This paradox of Christ. 
This is, as Dr. King says, somehow I know only when it is dark enough can I see the stars. Somehow. That if we can learn to look at the world as our ancestor Toni Morrison did, with cold and sober eyes at the brutal reality we find ourselves in, with the cold, hard, unmolested truths that the soul-killing myths of white freedom, white supremacy, and yes, white Christianity are parasitic and grotesquely warped idols that leave no one unscathed. If we are able to look at the world and one another with the warm eyes of resurrection, with the warm eyes that see each other as human beings, each with a divine spark, with a warmth that can only be described as hope. Two weeks ago, I joined Bianca and hundreds of other people of faith and moral witnesses in El Paso and marched on a detention center where hundreds of refugees were being caged. We were there for a moral Monday at the borderlands, and we were two miles from the Walmart where the tragedy would occur late, less than a week later. In fact, the organizers from Repairs of the Breach who got there early used that Walmart for last-minute supplies throughout the week. On Monday night after the action, our friend and comrade Ilka Vega from the Hope Border Institute, who joined us for the conference in April, took me to the top of a parking deck to look out over the city of El Paso. That night from the parking deck, when you look out over the city, you cannot tell where the United States of America ends and Mexico begins. It's like one big city. Yes, somehow I know. Only when it is dark enough can you see past the borders, to see beyond the walls created by man. Yes, this thing called faith is a paradox because it is not logical. You don't need faith for something you're sure is going to happen. It doesn't make sense. It defies our desire to control and be in charge. The brutality of El Paso, Dayton, Orlando, Charleston, Pittsburgh, and too many other tragedies to name are not God's plan. And yet we are called in these moments to even more desperately cling to a vision of a better world. To know that this world is not final. That there is something beyond us all, a city called heaven that is calling to something deeply within us all to be responsible right now to all of creation. That's why we call it faith and not a fact. Our faith tells us God is there even when around us seems to suggest God is absent. In that faith, we must more boldly consider what it means that God left us the keys to the kingdom, beloved. We are left the keys to the kingdom. No, we can't pray our way out of it. We can't logic our way out of it. We've got the keys. We've been given the keys. And we're not in charge. It's kind of big and scary. While the master is away, we have to care for one another. The truth is we cannot bring the master back, especially when God feels like God's missing. But everything we do can bring the kingdom to here on earth. Whereas the Hebrews said, And all these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And we are not of those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. And so, beloved middle, let us have faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Maybe so. Amen.